Did I interest you in a stamp? Yeah, give me a stamp. Oh. No, give me a purple one. Oh, I'm sorry we haven't any purple ones. I could uh, paint one for you. I don't want a painted one. person hasn't got any rights in this country anymore. The government even tells you what color stamps you gotta buy. Wanted, dead or alive, this is the award-winning stamp show here today. If you can dream it, we can collect it. This is episode number 339, brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center, a nonprofit 501c3 corporation for the advancement of philately. This is Cash. This is Mark. This is Jim. This is Becca. And uh, today we have a wanted poster, a... Uh, Theft that uh, needs to be resolved, and it needs to be resolved quickly because it's getting cold very quickly. Right? Yeah. Yep. This is a, this is hot off the press at uh, at least in Lens. Fifty thousand dollar reward for the return of a stamp collection with first day of issue stamps and envelopes. Yeah, but when was it stolen? Uh, it was stolen approximately nineteen sixty nine. It's the cold case of cold cases. All right. So 50 years ago, a collection was stolen out of a uh, garage in Temple City, California. Mm. A first day covers. So if there's a $50,000 reward, you got to figure these are top flight Something. first day covers. I mean, you know, best of the best. Yeah, like U.S. number one on a first day cover. You know, a plate block. Right, yeah. On, on a cached first day cover. So I, I looked in uh, I, I looked in Siegel's to see all the first take covers that have been sold since 1969 because he identifies how they're addressed and I didn't find a single one. Yeah, uh, why don't you give the address real quick so that people can be looking through their collection and saying, "Oh, right. look." The em- the envelopes were addressed to uh, Fritz Holscher, I think that's the, how you pronounce it, in Pasadena, Altadena, and possibly Temple City, California. So it's a guy who sent in first day covers. Apparently. Apparently. And uh, got them back or something. Uh Uh-huh. And now he... Because they were addressed to him. Right. So... So they should be easily identifiable. Well, but the thing is, in 1969, if you were sending... Stamp, you know, envelopes to the post office, and they were putting the stamps on it. First, they canceling it, mailing it back, which is what they did. You don't have fifty thousand dollars worth of first day covers, right? <laughs> so I, I have a theory. I have a theory that uh, that the uh, that there's something hidden in the envelopes themselves, like uh, son, the, the the map to the gold is. Uh, in my first day cover collection. <laughs> <laughs> Secret treasure. Right. <laughs> so $50,000 for un- for addressed first day covers post 
or from around 1969. Now, but here's my question too: fifty thousand dollar reward. Wonder if you just find one cover. Right. Do you get? You obviously don't get fifty thousand dollars. You get fifty thousand for the collection. Right. Which there may be fifty thousand first day covers in that collection. In which case, you get a dollar. Maybe there's two hundred thousand, and right. the fifty thousand is based on face value. I'm kind of curious if the person is uh, like trying to recapture his youth or something. Yeah. Because if they were stolen out of his garage, let's make pretend they were actually stolen and not like his mother threw them in the trash saying, get these things out of here. We've been staring at these too long. Uh, 1969 first day covers. I just can't see $50,000 in value. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a tough one. So, uh, Mr. Uh, Horsher, Holzerier, right? Fritz. Fritz, if you could uh, send us an email or something to uh, Stamp Show here today at gradingmatters.com, I would uh, really appreciate some sort of feedback on this. As a matter actually, there's a phone number there, isn't there? Right. Well, uh, there's a phone number, and it says, call with specific, underline specific information describing the collection. So maybe he doesn't know what's in the collection. You have to call and tell him. <laughs> I Write down that number. I'm going to call him, and uh, next podcast we will have an update on the $50,000 <laughs> first day cover collection. Let's see if I can get some information from him. Yeah. So what we're going to talk about, to, well, that is philatelic. So I, sh- I was going to say what we're going to talk about today from a philatelic standpoint is... The Kansas-Nebraska issue. Yes. Uh, so a, a series of post office robberies in the Midwest was uh, the stated reason for the creation of the 1929 Kansas and Nebraska overprinted stamps of the Fourth Bureau issue. So the post office department conceived the idea to overprint stamps with the abbreviated names of individual states, believing that stolen overprinted single state stamps would be difficult to fence in or out of the state. Kansas and Nebraska were selected to initiate the experiment. Since security at large post offices was considered adequate, only small post offices would receive the stamps. A one-year supply of the one-cent through ten-cent stamps were overprinted for Kansas and Nebraska. The higher values were not included because they were not printed by Rotary Press and could not easily be overprinted. The overprinted stamps could only be sold at post offices within their respective states but they were valid for posters throughout the United States and wherever U.S. regular stamps could be used. Shipments of the stamps began, began on April 15, 1929. And that's from the Smithsonian. The Smithsonian said that. That's an interesting <clears throat> thing, though, that you read. Uh, the high values were not overprinted because they weren't rotary press. Never knew that before. Hmm. That's interesting. So we could have had, we could have had more. Yeah, later on when they started repressing them, yeah. So, the, uh, and, and what the Smithsonian posits is that the, that economics rather than the theft actually paid a pivotal, played a pivotal role in promoting the state stamp idea. Kansas and Nebraska postmasters were required to requisition a one-year supply of the overprinted, overprinted stamps, not the normal quarterly supply requisition. Had the experiment succeeded, the post office department planned to extend the scheme to all 48 states, hoping to cut fulfillment costs by 75%. 
So in other words, if you could prevent the stamps from being stolen because you're going to be giving them four times more stamps and then they have to store them and make sure they don't get stolen. Basically, that's exactly what companies do with perfins. Mm -hmm. They would buy the stamps, they would perfin them, and then if uh, you know you used them on your mail and IBM saw your mail and go, hey, why does your envelope have a stamp that says IBM and perfils on it? And you go, Ooh, <laughs> please go see uh, human resources and uh, bring a box to clear out your desk. But apparently there was there were thefts yeah. where people would go to these small post offices, they'd steal a bunch of stamps, and then they'd fence them elsewhere. So if you reduced the ability to fence them, then hopefully they wouldn't get stolen. Right. So back in 1929, you had to worry about whether or not the stamps that you were buying at below face value were being stolen. <laughs> and now in 2022, you have to worry about the stamps you were buying below face value were printed in China. <laughs> and oddly enough, you also have to worry that the Kansas-Nebraska stamps that you bought were printed in China as well, overprinted regular <laughs> BRO issues. I don't know much about the uh, Japanese local stamps. I forget what they call them. Uh, but they sort of have that sort of same thing where each provisional district has their own stamps. I wonder why they're doing it. I wonder if it has something to do with this, hmm. this sort of thing. Anyway, yeah, economic. Well, obviously the theft is the key, but I can see how it would be economic and how they would save a lot of money if you just shipped them more stamps. But then, you know, they'd have to store more stamps, making them a bigger target of thieves. And so they'd have to figure out some balancing point between the two. Yeah. Yeah, I I just, you know, all these years later, I, I kind of think the theft, you know, was probably more important or at least. Uh, well, I think know, it was an integral part of the yeah. entire decision. Yeah, certainly. That's would certainly get more press than the idea of, well, we're going to try and make it ec more economically feasible for the post office department. Yeah. Um, so we should emphasize that um, stamps printed in China probably did not come from a lab just so we don't get demonetized. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, cashing in on all our podcast dollars <laughs> that flow into us. Yeah, just so everybody knows, we have yet to see a dollar from Podbeam or anybody <laughs> like that. We, we, If they demonetized us, we'd be, just look at it and go, from what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, let's go over real quick as Kansas and Nebraska's were actually counterfeited because there are a couple of values that are very, very valuable. In particular, Scott's number 666. Yes. Which the, is the uh, 8 cent. Yeah, the 8 cent. Um, yeah, there, there's, um, there's some very convincing fakes that, uh, that we've come across lately. Um, usually they're... they're uh, Printed on the normal rotary press stamps that have the regular rotary press colors, and you can tell those real easily because the Kansas Nebraska's were printed in a very short time period, and the inks 
are uh, are very much the same. They're very similar, but you can find the normal fourth bureau issues without the overprints, you know, in those same colors. And um, yeah, this that issue was printed all the way up into the 1930s. Yeah, and it's and and even after the 1930s, they still had inventories at the post offices. So people got went down to the post office and said, "Hey, these stamps that were made uh, ten years ago are getting kind of premiums. Let's let's go ahead and put some fake overprints on these. We'll go down to the post office. Mm-hmm. Well, the post office." that they'd go down to and grab the stamps were not the same stamps as the ones 10 years earlier. And uh, why don't you, why don't we go through that easiest? Cause it, the, the, this is the easiest way to tell fakes. Right. Uh, that you, well, especially with mint stamps, uh, you can tell by the condition of the gum on the back. Um, the, the, um, uh, the uh, gum breakers are different. And the tell what a gum breaker is. Uh, the gum breakers are um, are uh, little creases purpose, purposely introduced in order to keep the uh, the sheet from curling up. Yeah, if if you and I collect Philippine stamps, and and actually I was talking about Japan. Japan is notorious for that. They don't have gum breakers on the back, and so when you get the sheets, if you pull them out and you're in a arid climate like Nevada. You eventually, you instantly do not have a sheet. You have a tube. <laughs> it literally just curls up into a tube. Well, the gum breakers break. Quote: I'm using finger quotes here. You can't see them because we're on a podcast. But everybody will vouch. There's, I'm doing finger quotes. The gum breakers break the gum so that it doesn't curl like that. It gives it um, relief of the stress. So that it will continue to lay flat, and and, so, and also uh, the colors. Uh, well, hold the, on, but, uh, but the gum breakers, right? The ones from the 1930s have two gum breakers on the back, right? Mm-hmm. You want the the ones with one gum breaker. One gra- so they spaced out the gum breakers. Mm-hmm. They have they have a space between them, and uh, they spaced them out far enough where on the original Kansas Nebraska's only one of them shows up on the back of a stamp then they made it narrower and it'll have two now in the very last printings it looks more like streaks of gum they don't actually have like a gum ridge or a gum breaker it's like streaks and the streaks are the very last printing and so that's the third type of gum that you'll see on the fourth bureau issue that will never occur on a uh, Kansas Nebraska. Yeah, and the and the other um, way to tell a lot of times is the is the, is the color of the stamp. Like for example, the the six sixty six um, is a very dull um, olive green. Uh, so if the stamp that you're looking at uh, has a bright green or, or bright olive green color then you can be sure it's it's uh it's a, a fake overprint yeah the nine center is also more reddish or pinkish and the 10 center is more orangish and yellowish so they are markedly different All right but the overprints um are 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 the tough part because a lot of the overprints you know they they used to you know guys used to put the 
the uh, regular issues inside of a typewriter and just type in, you know. <laughs> but uh, but these days um, they're um, they're they're laser printed um, or inkjet printed, and uh, with the today's scanning techniques, I mean, you can get really really close. Yeah. And how you tell an inkjet is. Well, first of all, if you happen to have a $75,000 VSC machine sitting next door, you know, then, then you're fine. But realistically, for the normal collector, what you really have to do is you just have to look with magnification of at least 10 power and see if the ink that is that printed the Nebraska or the Kansas, see if it's glossy. That's the only thing you can do is try to look for glossy gum because it won't have glossy gum. It'll have a flat yeah, glossy gum. ink. You mean? I'm sorry, yeah. glossy ink. Yeah, I'm I'm stuck on the gum side. Got to turn my brain over. Right. <laughs> yeah. So uh, t- uh, with experience, if you print something off on a inkjet printer or something like that, and look at it. You know, just learn the te- learn the techniques of picking out, you know, what the edges look like and things like that. All right. But I mean, we're seeing we're seeing fakes of even the lower values, the like the one and a half cent. Yeah. You know, the four cent. I mean, you know, and those are tougher because the browns are, are, are harder to tell apart from each other color wise. Well, the two cent, they use the same color. You can't tell mm-hmm. a Kansas, Nebraska from a fake by the color because the two cent color didn't change, and the one-cent color didn't change very much at all. Mm-hmm. It's the high values that changed. And actually, I shouldn't say that because the four-center has a relatively high catalog value. Yeah. And it didn't change color. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it, it it's tougher. Yep. So, we have a story about a box of covers. <laughs> and I'll start it, and then I'll give it over to Jim. Um, here at PSE, we get phone calls all the time of people who, you know, want to have their stamps checked out. And we also buy stamps here. You know, they'll bring it in and we'll buy them. Doesn't happen very often. Usually we refer it off to people. But a box of covers showed up. And it was kind of a junk lot of covers. And it wasn't worth sending off to anybody. And he said... Because it was a banker box full, I usually pay about fifty to seventy-five dollars for a banker box full of philatelic material, and I figure, you know, typically they're always going to be worth fifty to seventy-five, even if you throw ninety percent of it away. And so I split the difference, and I told him sixty bucks, and he found it. You know, he, he it wasn't his; he found it someplace. So I go sure, and took the sixty bucks and. I took it and I sorted everything out and, you know, had fun going through it and found nothing. You know, it was <laughs> like, oh, you know, I found like two covers that might have been, might be worth 20 bucks. It, and so. It uh, epitomizes the dictionary definition of common. Yes. <laughs> yes. It was common. And so. Very common. So I went through it and it was like, oh, okay, well, I, you know, I. Lost 40 bucks, but, you know, I had some fun going through it. But all the envelopes had letters in it. And I just happened to pick, you know, one of them. It, it, by the way, this this went from 18, like, 40 to 1960. Right. And it was a family, a family correspondence. 
And so I go, oh, this is interesting. So, you know, 1840, those are the two covers that I pulled out that I figured, you know, were, were 10 bucks each. But then I looked at it and I Googled the guy because I started reading these letters and they started talking about real technical stuff. And I Googled the guy's name and it turned out he worked on the Manhattan Project. And so, you know, we were wondering about stuff and so I had some fun with it and then I handed it to Scott and Jim and Jim, what did you find in it? Well, the interesting thing for me was that after he worked in the Manhattan Project, he came out here at the test site, worked for EG&G in the early 50s when they were setting off the nuclear uh, test in the air before they did the underground tests. And so going through the Las Vegas portion of it when he lived in Las Vegas, I found contents, the letters, of a couple of descriptions of um, what they were doing up at the test site at the time. Like, we set off the big one yesterday. I suppose you saw it in the paper. And, you know, because it was broadcast. And he talks about how difficult it was to work for the press, with the press there, things like that. So it was pretty interesting locally for us here. Um, I also found that almost all of the 1940s stuff was missing. This was a correspondence that uh, in the 30s and the 50s, um, it looked like there was two or three letters a month. And in the 40s, I think there were two letters. Mm. And they were both from his wife to something. So <clears throat> apparently whoever tossed it out or wherever this guy got it had already been through the bulk of the Manhattan Project stuff. But it's still interesting because it it has all of his MIT stuff um, uh, in the 30s, which was leading up to when they started the Manhattan Project. And I don't know enough about that history to know uh, when, they find, when they put that together, but I do know that they didn't go out to New Mexico until in the 40s. Yeah. They were um, working at MIT, and there was a place in Kentucky they worked, too. Well, Wayne Youngblood, uh, he actually had, he was raised at Los Alamos. Oh, okay. And he specializes in the postal history of Los Alamos. Just for people who are not aware, Los Alamos is where they sequestered all the scientists and basically put them in lockdown and said, you guys are here, consider yourself in prison, but you're getting paid really super well. And they built an entire town for them with libraries and swimming pools and everything like that. Well, their families were with them, too. And their families yeah. were with them and everything. And uh, But they weren't allowed to leave. And they weren't allowed to send mail out. And the mail went to, like, a special P.O. box. And then everything was checked. But, again, for that time period, there was nothing in this correspondence. So it's unlikely that he said, okay, I'm going to stop mailing mail because I'm in Los Alamos because other people did. A lot of the letters were to his family, to his parents mainly. Yeah. And so yeah, you know, and his family was with him so, you know, his wife and children so <clears throat> he was, the Las Vegas correspondence was, most of it was he was writing home telling them what the kids were doing. Yeah, but uh, it's pretty cool that uh, he was talking about the nuclear tests in Nevada. Exactly. 
Those are like yeah. museum items. You can shoot, you know. <laughs> we have a nuclear museum out here in Las Vegas. Yeah. And uh, dri- driving uh, to and from uh, lunch, which, by the way, again, Las Vegas South Point Casino, 1130, we always have lunch. Bunch of stamp collectors. Actually, wasn't a bunch today. There were only five of us. Man. Yeah, we got decimated by something. Yeah, that was like the smallest group we've ever had. But anyway, uh, so uh, when I drive by the airport, there's a statue of a mushroom cloud. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we, we have our nuclear yeah, history. And, and there's postcard views of the actual atomic bombs going off up at the test site in the early 50s. Uh, it was a media event, and, you know. Were there any postcards like that in it? Not in it. But oh. I But I have seen the postcard, real photo postcards of it. Right. And I lived here during that period of time, and so I can remember... The bright light, you know, when the bomb goes off in the early morning hours, and yeah. And what do they call the the melted sand? Uh, uh, yeah, Tr- trinitite, trinitite, trinitite yeah. Trini- tritinium, or something like, like that. that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, when they they had they would they went in the early '60s. I think they went to the underground testing, and they also had a moratorium on um, open air testing or above ground testing. Uh, for a little while in the 50s, and he alludes to both of those items. So pretty interesting correspondence. Yeah, so all of a sudden my $60 loss all of a sudden turned into uh, some pretty cool postal history. And this is something that I always uh, – Joel Weinstein, shout out to Joel Weinstein. He always brings covers into uh, the Arcadia Stamp Show. And I would – open up the envelopes and look at the letters and I would find stuff because stamp collectors, you know, they look at the outside and then say, you know, with contents and they don't even look at it. You know, it's just with contents and you look at them. And that's how I I told the story about the civil war one. I got a bunch of covers with number 65s on it. And the person said, yeah, they're civil war. And I go, well, they're all civil war. That's when the stamp was issued. And so he goes, yeah, but some of them talk about it and go, okay, fine. So I, you know, instead of giving them like 50 cents each, I give them like two bucks each. And, uh, but I, you know, I expected it to say, uh, hi, dear wife, uh, I'm, uh, you know, going off to war. Hi, uh, Jerry got shot or something like that. No, this was a dude going, yeah, we went out today. The Confederates rode up the hill. We rode up the other hill. We exchanged two volleys from each other and then we all went home. And it was like, wow, this is Civil War stuff. Yeah. But the person never looked. They just knew that it was like Civil War related. If they had known what the actual letters were, if they had t- taken the time to read them, it would have been like, holy mackerel, these are not Civil War. These are major Civil War. Which kind of blends back into what we were talking about a few podcasts ago last year on the historical letters. Yeah. <clears throat> and if you remember, we talked about how a, a group of people, we don't know exactly who they were, but they started this company. It's called Historical Mail. And they promise for a fee, a subscription fee, to send you once a month a historical, a photocopy of a historical letter. Well, it's more than a photocopy. They make it sort of look real. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a color photocopy 
but it it, it kind of looks real. Yeah. And and uh, it depends on the era, I suppose. But and there's a history that comes with it of what you're reading. But um, my wife must have heard that podcast, so she said, "What a great present for." my husband. And so she <laughs> bought me a subscription to this. And um, I got my first one. I thought I'd just share it with you because it's cool. kind of interesting. We're talking about contents. Now, you probably won't find this in any mail that you pick up. But this is a letter addressed to Henry Ford. Dear sir, I still have got, while I still have got breath in my bo- lungs, I will tell you what a dandy car you make. <laughs> <laughs> I've driven Fords exclusively when I could get away with one. <laughs> Weren't they all Fords? For sustained, for sustained plea, blah, 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 blah. You've got a winner in the V8. <laughs> Yours truly, Clyde Champion Barrow. Did, did they give you the... This up? is Bonnie and Clyde Clyde. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and he's writing to Henry Ford... Telling him, and it's his 1934 letter, telling him what a dandy car he makes. He says, I, I would, he says, I have been in business which hasn't been strictly legal, and I don't hurt anything to tell you what a fine car you got in that V8. <laughs> so anyway, that's the kind of material you get um, it didn't from come with, them. It didn't come with an outer envelope, though? Nope. nope oh. Not the envelope. I don't know whether the envelopes are in the archives where they get these from. I suspect that's in the Ford Museum somewhere. Yeah, the, the one that I saw um, was this. They'd give you this. Uh-huh. But they'd also give you, like, the envelope it came in. Oh, okay. And it would be, obviously, a fake envelope. But, you know, it would have, like, a two-cent bureau issue on it or something like that. Was it a photocopy, too, or was it a real envelope? It was a real envelope. It was a printed envelope. Oh, it was okay. a... And, I mean, the the ones that I saw that uh, they get away with the most are the stampless folded letters. Yeah. Because then they don't have to fake anything. They just make pretend, you know, they print both sides of the piece of paper. Right. Um, I thought it was great. I think that this is great. <laughs> I think this is a cool letter. Well, yeah. It, you know, there's something that you probably would never see unless you just happen to be wherever it's kept. And it's even and, got the received marking on the mm-hmm. top. Yeah, they... And obviously Henry Ford kept the letter. Yeah. So anyway, that but that's the kind of thing that Cash was talking about when he was talking about contents is you just never know when you're going to open up a really common three two cent or three cent use that you know like these were almost all three cent Jefferson Prexies. Yep. And or or fourth bureaus back in the 30s and it's like you know, they're worth nothing philatelically, really. But the contents make it very interesting. So Yeah. I so, found some interesting things, too. Um, definitely check the envelopes when you buy them. Yep. Yep. So I, I made myself a free lunch out of it. Plus, yes, it's going to a great home. Yes, <laughs> it is. The Southern Nevada Philatelic Library. Yes. Anything else? Nope. Then on that great note... Have a good time and read the contents. We need your help. Nothing on the internet is free, including our phone and internet connections. So you can support the podcast by joining the Stamp Show Here Today Club. The cost is $10 for a lifetime membership. 
Please include your APS member number as we are an APS-affiliated club. Your support is greatly appreciated. Our brand new spanking address is 5965 Harrison Drive, Suite 6 in Las Vegas, Nevada, 89120. You left out the word glorious. Fabulous. <laughs> because you don't put that on the letter. Oh. Well, you could. You could, yeah. You could, yeah. Well, kids, that's all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank Sideshow Mel, Corporal Punishment, Tina Ballerina, oh, and from Not Landing, Miss Donna Mills. Oh, she was a sport. We've had lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of fun, but now the time has come to go. If this silkcom was found dead in his bed tomorrow, I'd be in heaven still doing this show. See you some other time! <laughs> you have been listening to Stamp Show here today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Collecting happens when we dream together.